Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show, Dominique Kirchner-Ryle, a professor of modern European history at the University of Miami and author of the new book, The Fumé Crisis, Life in the Wake of the Habsburg Empire. Uh, Dominique, welcome to Bookstack. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. So what was the Fumé Crisis? <laughs> it's a great question. I mean, it's the obvious question, but it's one that a lot of people don't ask. So I appreciate having it asked. Uh, they don't ask it because it's always told in terms of this man, this very famous at the time and maybe a little bit today for some of your listeners, um, poet, the bon vivant, uh, later became a soldier during World War One, and then is famous for becoming this dictator of the strange city-state Fiume after World War I. Many of us don't know about him now, but at the time, any reader of newspapers anywhere in the world would have known his name. Um, between 1918 and 1921, he really became this, this, this vision of politics that was the opposite of the rest of the articles you were reading in the newspaper. So if you were, you know, reading about Wilson or Clemenceau or Lloyd George, or you were, uh, you would see all these stuffy guys with shirts trying to battle in rooms about what the world should look like. And this was a guy who was explicitly not there and explicitly saying, that's not what makes the world passion does. And he uh, gave all these speeches um, after night, after the end of the war that became ever bigger mass rallies. And then in September, 1919, I, I mean, you can't even make this stuff up. He, he drove in a convertible into a town and said, I am now the commander here. And with like women, you know, kissing and lots of flowers being thrown. And for 15 months, he uh, basically played chicken with the Paris Peace Treaty and the majority of the Entente uh, winners of World War I, demanding that this town he was going to be incorporated into Italy, even though in Paris they had decided that that should not be an option. So the Fiume crisis, what is it, is usually told as the Denuncio crisis. And what my book is trying to show is, why did he even know about this town? Why is this even a thing? And show, why did these people throw flowers and kiss him? It's it's a different story than we were told to expect. Yeah, and it's one of the, the fascinating things about the book is that in many ways you're trying to get away from the Denunzio story, and yet he also hovers over the entire story. One of the things that is very striking, actually, is the way in which he's able to use language in such an evocative way, talking about the city as a martyr city, that uh, Italy's victory in the war had been a mutilated victory. And then when finally, when the Italian troops uh, end up in the city, uh, he talks about this being a Christmas of blood. So, so language is very important here, isn't it? Oh, it is. I mean, he, he, I've grown to really dislike him and uh, I try really hard to, to deal with my personal feelings about him and then looking at what he actually did historically, and he did a lot. And a lot of it is just based on this genius of the use of language. And, and you know, uh, uh, Richard, you brought up some of the more um, 
textbook appropriate things that he did with language. <laughs> you know, the mutilated victory is used in every textbook explaining why Italy is so weird and falls into fascism after World War One. But he also does some other things that explains why he has so many people following him that are illiterate. So he uses language also to shock and to, to separate himself out from bourgeois Europe and even upper class Europe. He, he calls the prime minister of, of Italy a shithead. I mean, that today we, we are surprised when our politicians are vulgar. Can you imagine what that was like in 1919 to hear someone be so irreverent about power and about states and about politicians. So his use of language goes both ways. It, it explains this kind of emotional pull, the Christmas of blood. Don't you want to know more? But it also is like, oh, my God, he's really not kissing up to power. Isn't that fascinating too? There's also this element that, again, one of the things that you seem to be pushing against is this very linear way of thinking about history that uh, we have the Christmas of blood uh, and then by 1924, Mussolini is formally annexed uh, Fiume. And you ask, does it matter that this transformation came about six years after the date that our history books have taught us to expect? So that's one of the things you're pushing back against, isn't it? Why does that matter? That it didn't happen earlier. Um, but but also what, the fact that we, when we look back, look at D'Annunzio and then look at Mussolini coming in and think, oh, yeah, this is all part of the rise of fascism. Right. Well, I mean, I've, I've been asked this question a bunch of times, and I, I think that um, we're going to hear a lot about fascism in the next couple of years, not just because of what we've experienced in our own political lives, but also because of the centenary of the March on Rome. And we're, we're going to be hitting a lot of, and then there's Germany, we're going to hit a lot of centenaries. We're going to be talking about fascism a lot. And in Italy, already these centenaries are very um, difficult because how do you celebrate something maybe you're not supposed to be very proud of happen, having happened, and yet you are the origin story of it. You know, the, 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 the word fascism is, is created by, by Italians. So uh, D'Annunzio's relationship to the story of the origins of fascism is one that is a very light on violence, high on volition story. It's about Italian men uh, and some women uh, leaving their homes voluntarily and following a leader who called himself Duce and making Italy great again, right? And he doesn't, he comes in on that, on, in that, uh, in that, um, red Fiat convertible be, uh, and with flowers thrown at him as the comandante. There's no bloodshed. There's no fighting. This is a vision of fascism that is very, fun and light on violence. And that's a very, I find, very problematic vision of fascism. And you're actually quite careful in the book to say, actually, he isn't a fascist. He's an Italian nationalist and that those two things are actually different. Oh, yes, absolutely. He does not believe in the political party controlling the state. He does not believe, he's not a fascist. He's never a card carrying member. He hates Mussolini. Mussolini hates him. It's a joint. And, and then, it, calling him a fascist, 
though I he's not my favorite guy, if I ever wanted to insult him, that's what I would say. I can't do that. It's not true. Um, however, the, the proto-fascism story links up the traumas of World War I, uh, the, the veterans' feeling of betrayal with how the end of World War I happens, um, this kind of paramilitarism, which in, in, in Danunzi's Legionnaires, it's definitely there, but it's, it, it, it makes why is Italy the first, right, of these fascist moments, 1922, uh, it fits so well. And so, like Gevat, uh, Robert Gevat's book, The, the Vanquish, it, it fits into a larger narrative of the war that never ended. But this was a, uh, an in, inescapable almost, you know, as Mark Mazzara says, uh, a vision of, uh, liberalism's failure and the world's traumas. And that we domino our effect our way to this. That the war didn't end and we're living the war. Fascism is the continuation of World War One. And I don't I don't think that's what Fume is. And it's it's one of the things, again, that I find really interesting because it's a very delicate line that you're walking, that yours is not that kind of explicitly optimistic history about polyglot pre-nationalist communities that somehow show us the way forward to some kind of post-nationalist future. But equally, you are trying to excavate, uh, in your own word, uh, the unique history of, of, of Fume out from underneath that, that kind of paramilitary vi- history of paramilitary violence done by uh, the likes, of, as you say, of my old friend uh, Robert Gervath. Uh, so, so, so where where does that where does that balance between those two things lie for you? Well, I've never said this before, but the way that you're posing the question, I guess it's in trying to understand a history of complicity. Right. Since this is not a history of violence, since Danuncio didn't come in with his legionnaires and 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 do what happened with the Freikorps in the Baltics or what happened in Macedonia, what happened so many other places, why didn't it happen? Why in a in a in a in a town that is a boom town of immigration where it's it's raised in population at over 60% in 20 years. And these people are coming from everywhere. This is a port city, an industrial port city on the rise. Uh, over half of the population does not identify itself as mother tongue Italian. Why isn't there violence when you have someone like Danuncio calling Croatians apes? And you know, the, one of the largest segments of the population does identify its mother tongue, Croatian. Why isn't there violence? And, and the people following them, you know, many paramilitary men, veterans who were just in a war that was very violent. And these are not soft hearted, like, uh, I'll, will you be my babysitter guys? Um, so, so what creates complicity? And what I found was why, what is the state doing to make annexation feel like it's in the city's interest. So that's what I was trying to understand complicity. And you 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 positively embrace complexity it seems to me because you really come away from the reader really comes away from this book thinking well okay on the one hand we've got the loss of order from the Habsburg empire that that uh, was just disappeared during the uh, the first world war you've got this wilsonian narrative about national identities you've got fascism which to say the very least is no respecter <laughs> uh, of pluralism uh, and and 
and throughout all of this, you're focusing on these ordinary people in the city who are essentially just trying to muddle through in their and make the best of the of the situation. Yeah, I mean, I think that my my I can't remember exact. I mean, I know when this book was born, but I I, I have this very strong memory of reading Tara Steiner's The Lights That Failed. I don't know if you ever read that. Um, and she basically at some point, and and I do commend her for. Um, bringing Eastern Europe into the master narrative of Europe after World War One. So, you know, I'm not, this is me not being negative, but she did kind of characterize, and I think she did this quite correctly based on the historiography that she had at her fingertips, that the biggest questions in Western Europe were about economics and the biggest questions in Eastern Europe were about nationalism. And the anger I felt at that characterization was strong, Basically because money was much tougher in Eastern Europe and at, after the end of World War I. Pro- entire regions were decimated by the war. Uh, houses burned, people missing, entire economies no longer existent. And I think it was at that moment, I'm like, what is going on? What are we, what's going on? So a lot of what this book was actually trying to do was was show all of the bumps in the road of moving on after the war in the worst of economic circumstances, but without any states. Though France was in a terrible place after World War I, Britain, you know, let's not even go there. At least they still had states. They, they They weren't stable political units like they were before, but maybe that was a good thing. One way or the other... Uh, the idea that economics wasn't a problem for Eastern Europeans and nationalism was a bigger one was part of what led me to do this, is to try and say, what does it mean to live in a world where your empire is gone? And as you say right at the very beginning of the book, uh, it's a lovely phrase, actually, that uh, we have to remember that Fiume is a place, it's not just a moment. Well, that's what I believe. It was really taking the Western European story of the town and trying to anchor it in its own story. So you set out to write about the actual place. You're looking at the lives of everyday citizens, uh, the mundane, uh, you call it. Um, Tell us a bit about what you found. Well, what I found was, was, man, these people know how to survive. I, I realized very quickly that it's a, it's a tricky archive. It was, uh, it was created by the Hungarian state. Fiume was part of Habsburg, Hungary. And since no one really knew what the town was going to be, it just kept on making its archive the way it had always been made. So well, you would assume in a moment of rupture, you would have a whole new system and everything. No, no, they just kept on, they kept on organizing all their files and, and everything as they had before. And what I just started seeing was all these incredible manipulations, compromises, fixes, band-aids to make the world not feel like it's changed. And this isn't just on the part of the archivists or on the part of the bureaucrats that are, that are filing their paperwork. This is also, uh, you know, in the day to day of like, how do doctors, uh, process their bills and, and how do you catch a, a sneaky fishmonger who is adding a little e- extra weight to the scale. And, and 
so what I what I found was a history of a state that's trying desperately to not go into chaos to keep things going until we can find another state. And the, all these little stories, the book is filled, as you just said, with all these people. But these are not people whose letters I have, whose diaries I have. You know, I don't I don't know what they look like. I don't know, you know, what, you know, what, I don't know what, I don't know what their mentality is. What I do know is the bumps and, 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 and oiled over moments of living through transition. And I think that that's the main story of this book. And it's, it's fascinating because, uh, as you say, you're repeopling the history of the, the Fume crisis. And uh, you do have some lovely stories, but but they, they're stories with a point as well. For example, you talk about the way in which just ordinary teachers uh, use their lessons to reinforce the, the values of pluralism that embody the very, citiz- uh, the very city itself. So these, these are not big policy decisions. These are just ordinary people who actually understand what they're about. Yeah, and and also that some na- some of the more extreme nationalists within the higher administration of the state end up losing against these ordinary people because because you know how far are we going to go? Are we going to run it? Are we going to bump heads that much? And what I found very fa- fascinating is you know the the secretary of the Italian National Council actually loses out to the the you know the the third in charge of the treasury office of the tobacco factory because he happened to have written in hungarian instead of italian i mean there's just these moments where hierarchy matters but it also doesn't always win I guess the question kind of becomes after you look at these stories is, do, do you think that there was a path available to Fume that didn't involve these competing nationalisms ending up wrecking the social fabric of the Habsburg Empire? So uh, uh, could, they, could they have preserved this very unique and plural society? Did it have to end in fascism? Nazi occupation, eventually Tito, Yugoslavia, was there an inevitability about this? I know we don't like that word. Could they have? Could they have preserved something? So you like to ask e- easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we're going. That's what we try. Uh, this is what we try to do on the American Purpose. <laughs> well, um, I, I would I would uh, hesitate to ever pose a question like that because once we know what happened, it's really impossible to see what happened. So if we know the Holocaust happened, how can we not shudder when we hear D'Annunzio call Fiume the Holocaust city, which he did? He called it the Holocaust city, not because Fiume was then going to be the city with the highest percentage of, of, of Jewish deaths in all of the kingdom of Italy. Um, Fiume was annexed to Italy in 1924. He called it the Holocaust city because he thought the word Holocaust meant the, the cleansing devotion to a cause, the opposite of what Holocaust is, right? Uh, so if you read history in terms of what happened afterwards and asked, was this inevitable? You're erasing entire life experiences that created the compromises to make the history that we know that happened happen. I don't know if I made myself clear, but 
What happened is because in part of the exhaustion of the people who lived through all this chaos, who tried all of these different ways to resolve this moment. We'll, we'll make it look like this, but we'll do it down under here that now we're in this state. Now we're in that state. And if we erase all of these gruelingly exhausting years of trying to survive and compromising with this and compromising with that, I don't know if we would have ended up where we ended up. So instead of saying, was this all inevitable? I kind of see this story as part of the inevitability in, in, in terms of people got sick of trying for something different because of how exhausted they were from every failed attempt. I guess it's, it's interesting listening to that to make the contrast with uh, Fiume Rijeka today mm -hmm. within Croatia. I mean, it, it's mm -hmm. still a distinctive part of the country. It's mm -hmm. very prosperous, but it, that has been made possible because it's so successfully integrated into a national state. Um, uh, but how do we join up those, those very <laughs> different experiences, I wonder? It's funny to hear that Rijeka is successfully integrated into a national state because Rijeka has a very, um, very different place in the state than most of the other. So it's the third largest city in, in the Republic of Croatia today, but it didn't have the same war experience as most of the rest of Croatia did. It was not as battlefields. There were, there, this is not a place where you had to watch out where you walked because of the mines. This, they, at the beginning of the war, they famously, and, and many nationalists today, uh, like to remind Rijeka of this. They, you know, they played Bosnian films at the, at the Cinetheque. So this is a town that is usually remembered as being the punk capital of the eighties. And there are lots of nationalists in Rijeka. I'm not saying that there aren't nationalists there, but it doesn't have the same history as Dubrovnik or Zada or, or Zagreb. And it is also a port town. It's a rusty port town. It is suffering economically enormously. It has a diminishing population more than any of the other big cities. So it, its place in the Croatian nation state now is, I think, there's a reason why the Sierra Rijeka was the capital of European culture. Because precisely why it sits strangely in Croatia, it's, it, it sits rightly in Croatia. I'm not saying it's not Croatian, but, but it has a different feel. People, you know, people, when they hear you're from Rijeka, they, they think you're coming from a different, a very different world, not necessarily multicultural, but definitely not necessarily as muscle memory nationalists as other areas, um, because of the war. And, uh, and I think it's a big question. They are, they're, from what I can see, they're working very hard to figure out how to put this history together. But I heard, and I know I'm talking too much, but I heard at a last week there was a, a sponsored seminar by the University of Amsterdam about this, uh, the ECAs, uh, being the European city of culture this year. And someone asked, would it ever be possible to put a statue up in Rijeka recognizing all the people that, f all the Italians who fled after World War II? And these are, depending on how you define the territory, tens of thousands of people fled um, when Rijeka was joined to Yugoslavia. 
And even the idea of that seemed absurd. So their multicultural past is very uh, lived and also strained. So, I mean, it's interesting kind of hearing that and seeing seeing this from a distance. But uh, from that distance, Croatia and um, Rijeka within Croatia does seem to work better than, for example, Bosnia-Herzegovina, which, it, which is partitioned where the country hasn't cohered in the same kind of way that it seems more of a more of a, a success story from that uh, Balkans war. Um, I think that Bosnia-Herzegovina's um, history now, current one, is deeply, it's not even comparable to what's going on in Croatia, mostly because it they were always very different republics, um, even though they were part of the same state, and many people see their histories interlocked with that. They, they should always be seen together. I'm not saying that it's weird to think of their histories as intertwined, but Bosnia is the battleground in the war. Though Croatia, some parts of Croatia were also battlegrounds, in no way comparable to Bosnia and Herzegovina. And also what kind of state got made after the wars is a completely different state. The question of sovereignty in Croatia is, is not a question anymore. It's a, it's a reality. This is not the case in Bosnia and Herzegovina, as you were mentioning with the partition. It's also a much richer state. It's a member of the EU now. It is absolutely geared to dealing openly with some of the battles many of the other members of the EU are battling with, which is identity politics, uh, you know, uh, how to be part of the EU, what's going on. Um, so I, I think that Rijeka's uh, own political goals with multiculturalism, I think they're changing and that that's interesting. I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what keeps on happening. I think already uh, there's when I started the book and I think I started it in 2010 um, everyone thought I was insane uh, to care about the story it was so clearly because the ex-Yugoslav world also liked the proto-fascism story so it's not just an Italian historiography or a European historiography of trying to explain how World War One goes to Danunzio that goes to Mussolini and then we get fascism and it's done it was also very useful for showing how Italian nationalism has been trying to ethnically cleanse the Adriatic since forever. And so, strangely enough, both sides agreed on the same story, that it's all Danunzio and Danunzio is Mussolini and this is all the same thing. Um, and so when I started, people were like, what are you doing? This, this, this history is already done. Um, because both sides were fine with seeing Italian nationalism and fascism being born in, in Fiume. And now there's so much interest in Rijeka to hear this other story. And I think it's as you are in, in, in intimating about trying to really reimagine what Rijeka's place is in Europe, not just in Croatia. So finally, Dominique, what, what do you think are the bigger lessons that we can learn about pluralism, sovereignty from this story of the Fiume crisis? Um, well, I think the most important thing is to, is to let history happen instead of trying to find the, the, the kind of um, skeleton key of history. So uh, to let the chaos happen and watch 
watch people trying to figure out how they can get out of what they fear and gain or regain what they what they strive for. The reason why my book feels so strange in anyone who's been trained at university to think about fascism or anyone who's been trained to think about the Balkans or anyone who's been trained to think about Italy is because we were given a very one plus one equals two vision of the domino effect of pain and trauma that led to the nightmare of authoritarianism and fascism. And what my book is really trying to show is no one knew that was going to happen yet. What they did know is that there was a world that was organizing itself around the concept of nation states. What we do know is that everyone was greedily reading the newspapers and hearing about uh, the Paris peace treaties and this vision of a league of nations, not a league of states, not a league of empires, uh, but a league of nations. And so treating, treating the, 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 these people on the ground who actually get, did get their moment of fame in 1919 and 1920, usually under the, the rubric of Denuncio, but, but <laughs> the reason why this all happened was because he actually took over a place. And then the question is, why did all these people let him? Um, they, they, they were working within the rhetoric they had, and many of them probably felt that it was a true path to the future, but they weren't acting the way they would 10 years later or 20 years later. And so what I, I really hope this book does, I mean, the reason why I wrote this book is I care about the history in, in and of itself, but I, what I really care about is figuring out all of the experiences that led to the history we know, instead of seeing them as predetermined steps in a, in a history we fear. So to really give some space, some oxygen to the years after the war and see how, how many different things were out there that people were working around, working in, working through, and working against instead of seeing it all as fitting so nicely. Until we see the potentials of a moment, we'll never be able to take over our own moments. And my history is not one that's going to change what happened after. But it definitely, hopefully, once you read it, will make you very cynical about thinking that a... Uh, 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 more traditional political history after World War I is what really happened and had to. So the book is The Fumé Crisis, Life in the Wake of the Habsburg Empire. It's written by my guest, Dominique Kirchner-Ryle, and published by Harvard University Press. But for now, Dominique, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Oh, I really enjoyed it. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusic. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alders, saying thanks for listening. <laughs>